Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. I think the political project for Labor is to manage the immediate challenges around cost of living and climate and energy transition while setting themselves up for a two or three year term. So I don't think we can expect to get everything immediately. And I think a lot of what um, people are going to be moving activism towards is a second term agenda. Hello and welcome to the Australian Politics Podcast. I'm Sarah Martin, Chief Political Correspondent of Guardian Australia, filling in for Murph while she's on leave writing the next quarterly essay. And I'm here today to analyse the latest Guardian Essential poll data. I'm joined by Peter Lewis, Executive Director at Essential Media, to guide us through the numbers, and Bill Brown, Director of the Australia Institute's Democracy and Accountability Program. This week we discuss a wide range of topics, from the job summit held by the Albanese government last week to the Integrity Commission bill that will be introduced to Parliament next week and what we can expect the proposed new model to look like. This talk was recorded on Tuesday and it comes from a webinar hosted by the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. If you would like to follow along and have a look at the slides being discussed during the episode, you can find them on the Essential Media website. This conversation was moderated by Ebony Bennett, the Deputy Director of the Australia Institute. Sarah, I might start with you just for our usual kind of recap of the fortnight in politics. It's certainly been busy for the government. The job summit, how did that end up turning out for uh, the Albanese government? Uh, Did they manage expectations adequately? I think they really did, and I think it was overwhelmingly positive for them. I mean, obviously, a couple of weeks ago, you had the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, really downplaying expectations, sort of saying it's not going to be a repeat of 1983 and, um, you know, don't expect too much, basically, but it's great to have everyone in the room talking. Um, They obviously went sort of above and beyond that. They not only got everyone in the room talking and um, appearing to collaborate, but they did have some concrete outcomes as well, both on the industrial relations front, um, but also some other measures that I think uh, people were, um, you know, hoping to achieve. There's still some sort of fine print to work out, particularly when it comes to things like multi-employer bargaining, um, which we know is going going to face some resistance from industry. Um, And Tony Burke has set set in train a process to now begin consultations on how how those changes to the Fair Work Act might look. Um, But look, overall, definitely a win for the government. Um, You know, I think Albanese has completely read the room correctly when he says people have got conflict fatigue and I think regardless, um, you know, particularly, you know, Peter Dutton's decision not to attend, uh, he sort of consigned himself to irrelevancy with that decision and so you had all the, you know, peak bodies represented in that room and, you know, you had pretty some pretty extraordinary things like people like Christy Kane talking to Andrew Forrest for the first time, you know, two very prominent West Australians from very different walks of life. But I think, you know, it was great, great to to see that, um, see that talking happening and uh, to see some consensus emerging between unions and industry. Yeah. And as for other things on the agenda, obviously uh, the budget is coming up, but um, 
you know, there's, there's always other things kind of bubbling away. What should people be on the lookout for um, on the horizon before we kind of dive into uh, the essential poll results? Sure. So this week, obviously, there's been a bit of attention again on the climate bill that the government wants to get through the Senate. Um, there's been some sort of last minute, uh, I was going to say horse trading, but let's be more generous than that, some last minute uh, negotiations with uh, Jackie Lambie and uh, David Pocock about amendments they wanted to see included uh, with the climate bill. Uh, there seems to be some agreement uh, reached on that now that with the government accepting some of David Pocock's amendments. So the government's very com- confident that that climate bill will pass the Senate this week, which is no small feat given everywhere, um, given the journey we've been on with climate change policy in this country, even though this bill is obviously largely symbolic. It's obviously very important that um, it, it, it passes the parliament and enshrines that 43% uh, emissions reduction target into law. So that's this week. And then next week, the big thing is going to be the introduction of the Integrity Commission Bill. Uh, We know that the government's been sort of working particularly with a lot of those um, independent MPs who are elected on a platform of integrity, has been working with those MPs on what the final model is going to look like. And so all shall be revealed when uh, Mark Dreyfus introduces that bill into Parliament next week. Yeah, exciting times indeed. Uh, Pete, we might come uh, now, since we're speaking of integrity, um, to the poll results. So there is a bit of an integrity theme running through the questions this week, Um, uh, but we'll start off just with the rise and rise of our new Prime Minister. Um, Those that are regular poll position attendees would have noticed that massive increase after the election in approvals. Um, Before the election, it was basically line ball or negative. After the election, it got to 59, 18 approvals. It's dipped a bit over the first three months, but it's really back up now to where it was. A couple, a slightly more people disapproving, but also that down. So 59, 25. We're not even really bothering with Dutton at the moment. If people are desperate to know how unpopular it is, I'm happy to throw it in (laughs) in a month's time. But um, as... As Ebony, sorry, as um, Sarah said, he really dealt him out of the public himself out of the public debate by boycotting the job summit. And a really sure interesting counterpoint with David Littleproud, who turned up and rolled up his sleeves and um, got about the business. Um, I've put a piece up on the Guardian today, just reflecting on both the figures we're doing today, but also the summit, and also, you know, against the backdrop of Joe Biden's speech addressed to the nation last week about the fragility of democracy. And there was just a line that struck with me um, from that speech, which was um, about seeing politics not as total war, but the mediation of our differences. And I did think that what we got out of the summit last week is a model for mediating differences rather than amplifying them. And if there was any change that I think is reflecting these numbers, to Sarah's point about conflict fatigue, it is a different model of doing politics where solving the problem is the objective rather than amplifying it for political gain. Yeah, certainly a different way of, different way of operating. Oh, yeah. and, 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 and likewise, sorry, I didn't see you'd moved on. So in terms of the, our sort of benchmark on is the country heading in the right or wrong direction, guess what? When we start doing that, more people think the country's heading in the right direction. So, <laughs> you know, these are tough economic times. The world's a scary place. There's climate catastrophe But there is a basic positivity within the Australian public that's there as an amazing resource for a government to tap. 
the next one is digging into this saga of the secret ministries of Scott Morrison. Yeah. Um, sounds contrast, like an excellent yeah. adventure novel. <laughs> Indeed. And, you know, it's not about kicking someone when they're down, but, you know, he's, you know, he's uh, he needs to own this. And, again, reflecting on what's going on in the States, let's, let's be clear. We had our Prime Minister extending his executive powers without telling anyone, even his colleagues. Like, if that doesn't send a shiver down the spine of um, people who care about democratic processes, I don't know what would. And again, you know, so over 50% agreeing that the Prime Minister should appear at the inquiry into the issue. more than that, 59%, including, I might say, 45% of coalition voters agreeing that the former Prime Minister's behaviour has diminished the reputation of his government. And then um, a majority of people saying it's time to resign. And again, also a third of coalition voters agreeing with that proposition. So I do think Australia is ready to close the book on the Morrison era. Um, I think the challenge for the Dutton opposition is to... Um, I'll say the, the challenge for the coalition is to also close the door. And you've got to say one half of the coalition was closing the door last week and getting involved in the summit, and the other one was doing what they've always done, which was union bashing. Yeah. Uh I might go on to this uh next one on support for a federal yeah. ICAC. Who would have thought? It's still 75, like it peaked at 82 in September 18, but this has been something that's been so popular for so long that you, I think people look at the government, the former government's inaction on this and scratch their head and wonder what was going on. It almost makes you feel like the um, opposition is because they've done something wrong. And I'm not saying they have, although... Um, any reader of The Guardian would see that there is a whole lot of content that may be subject to future inquiries. <laughs> However, the fact that these guys stood in the way of such a popular reform um, speaks volumes of the way they were approaching the task of government. It also created the backlash. You know, the the Teal Independents ran on a trinity. They ran on climate, gender and integrity, and the integrity was clear. Um, And, again, across partisan lines, um, you're looking at coalition voters. 75% of coalition voters want a federal ICAC, and maybe um, that number's up since the last election, but it is just, it's, it's an uncontested idea that the, you know, a little bit like action on climate. Um, that when you've got that number of the public wanting change and government can't do it, it actually undermines the integrity of government because yeah. government needs to be reflecting the will of the people. Uh, we've got only, a couple we of questions here on powers. Yeah, so there was a, we, we only put this in because we were asking at the end of last year. So, um, and, and you can see all these responses are trending up. So 61% up from 52 believe that um, an ICAC should be able to start an investigation into corruption based on a complaint or whistleblower information. Um, 57 up from 53 want to see a commission have a single unified commission with the same powers to investigate corruption in law enforcement, police and the public service, and that's critical because part of what the former government was trying to do was decouple the politics, um, political scrutiny out of that. 
Um, and again, a big shift from 47 to 55 in the proposition. It should be able to hold public hearings so the details of the cases are transparent. Um, the only area where there isn't such support is um, this proposition. It should only be able to start an investigation once you've established a crime is likely being committed. Now, that is actually a little bit of a tautology because you wouldn't run something ahead of a crime, but that was the argument the coalition was running, which was why we wanted to test whether there was sympathy for that. So you can see that basically the first question about um, running on a complaint for whistleblower information and the, the, the last question are in a way asking the same thing but framing it differently, but very much providing... Um, a forum and an avenue for whistleblowers to go is really popular. And Sarah, coming back to you, you've said the legislation is expected to be introduced next week. I know they've been going through a big period of consultation, but you would expect um, that this bill will be fairly robust, not only because Labor was committed to it prior to the election, but uh, independents have been running so hard on elements of this for so long. I feel like the public's understanding of this is actually quite sophisticated at this point. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting, interesting point to make. And I thought that in the in those questions, perhaps the support for some of those measures was as a result of increasing awareness of what what some of those things actually would mean. Um, so you know, obviously, Mark Dreyfus has it was it was a pre-election commitment. We know um, a fair bit about what's in the bill, but we also know a few things that are missing. Um, we know um, that obviously it will operate independently of government. It will have reasonably broad jurisdiction to investigate serious or systemic corruption. That was one change that they made. Initially, it was serious and systemic, um, but with uh, following some of the roundtables with the crossbench, that was sort of toughened up slightly. Um, it will have the power to investigate uh, ministers, public servants, statutory office holders and contractors. Um, it will also be able to commence inquiries on its own initiative or in response to tip-offs from the public or from anyone, which is obviously not a feature of the, um, the coalition's previous bill. Um, and it will also not, it will be able to investigate both criminal and non-criminal corrupt conduct, which, which again is a slightly lower threshold than what we'd previously seen on the table. So, um, uh, and also interesting to note, it will also be able to um, investigate conduct that had occurred before it was actually established. Um, and it will have the power to hold public hearings. Um, some of the, we're not 100% sure of the process and the threshold for those public hearings as yet. All we know from the government so far is that they've said it will, it will, they will occur when it's in the public interest to do so. So the mechanism for that is um, yet to be sort of fleshed out or seen by, by us at least. Um, we know that some of the independents are pushing for further things like whistleblower protections um, and a, a slightly beefed up uh, oversight role for a parliamentary joint committee. So um, some of those things we will know the full detail of once we see the legislation next week. Um, but I guess as a starting point, we know that it's a lot better than uh, what we've previously seen and it has taken in some of those elements that were in Helen Haynes's bill, which is obviously um, she attempted to get through in the last parliament. Um, so, yeah, look, I think it's it's been a long time coming. And it, going back to the poll today, I mean, obviously the government has really emphasised that this is part of trying to restore some of that public trust in federal parliament, which is obviously, you know, at shockingly um, low levels. Um, so clearly this is something that needs to be done as a first step to try and restore some of that faith in politics. 
Pete, I was interested in your reflections and the connections with Joe Biden's um, speech uh, and the recent job summit and that spirit of collaboration. How much does this push on integrity and being seen to do politics uh, a little bit more collaboratively kind of play off one another or, or reinforce one another in that idea of restoring trust? I think it's two parts to the one story. I think it's really easy to... Well, it's not really easy, but it is very convenient to embody a value in a piece of legislation. So the federal ICAC is um, a positive step to improve integrity in public life, but that doesn't solve the whole problem. It creates almost the safety net underneath it. The way you build integrity in public life is by the way that you conduct public life and the way that you um, exercise power. And again, as we saw as we were increasingly learning, the model of the previous government was to concentrate power, to hoard it, dispense it and trade it. What I think we saw um, with the summit is a model where power is distributed and shared out broad, more broadly in society. It doesn't mean the government's not responsible for the final decisions, but it means a very different way of making decisions. If you, civil society, citizens working through unions, business chambers, other groups can resolve differences, identify problems and come up with an approach and come to us, we will listen to you. Now, that all sounds really cute, but it is actually creates a more resilient democracy. And you can see the opposite of that in what's ha been happening in the States and not just under Trump, but for a couple of generations, the concentration of corporate lobbying power on both sides of the aisle, um, the vast bulk of um, working people feeling totally disengaged from politics and, of, of course, turning to simple solutions. So I did think that the Biden speech and sort of marking out some territory and then what's going on in Australia, on one level it's quite heartening. I wouldn't over, you know, glorify where we are as a nation. I think that um, if you looked at the trust figures that we put out again, um, it's still pretty ordinary. Like it's not like we've all become civic citizens in a couple of months, but I can see a journey that if, you, if, 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 if the government continues along this road and takes the model for jobs and skills into other areas of wicked public policy, there is this opportunity to, to get a sense that we can move forward. Um, one final reflection. Um, the 1983 um, summit delivered the prices and income accord, but it also delivered a degree of trust that allowed for the broader economic reforms that followed. Um, setting the conditions for collaborative government is more than one summit, but it can create a dynamic which is really positive. Yeah, I was really struck by Jim Chalmers ahead of time uh, and I guess trying to manage expectations around the summit you know, people were putting to him all the specific proposals that um, various groups were bringing, whether it was unions or business, mm. to the summit. And he was just more or less kept saying, well, that's not government policy, but we want to hear everyone's ideas and we're not going to agree with all of them, but they should all be part of the discussion. And it was just, I, I honestly couldn't remember the last time I'd heard a politician say anything remotely like it. And, um, yeah, just struck me as... Um, it just sounded very different and it doesn't immediately put everyone on the defensive or that you've, you know, boxed into a position, but that, you know, options are on the table and they want to hear from them. It's just um, 
bit of a, a different atmosphere, hopefully. Um, Bill, I might come to you next. Next to me, Bill Brown, Director of the Australia Institute's Democracy and Accountability Program. Bill, I was going to ask specifically coming back to some of those provisions and the idea of trust that Pete was talking about there. Um, You talked about um, why public hearings are important there, that um, it can inspire people to to come forward and things. It, It is often quite contentious. Sarah mentioned the idea that um, they're not sure yet if this bill will, how the, how the public hearings will um, actually work. They'll have the ability to have them. But things like ICAC in New South Wales, they still have the ability to hold private hearings. They don't all have to be public. It's not the default. How does that work and why is that important? Yeah, that's right. So integrity commissions, um, when they have the power to hold public hearings, don't do so just by default. Um, usually it's a a decision of the commissioner or commissioners based on the idea that holding that hearing would be in the public interest. And usually you hold some private hearings first to find out the lay of the land before making that serious step. Um, But having that option is very important, um, partly to negate one of the most common criticisms of integrity commissions, which is that they're star chambers uh, where decisions are made in secret. And holding that public hearing firstly gives a chance for others uh, who might have useful evidence to come forward. It's a a much higher level of public profile than any private hearing could be. Um, And then secondly, it lets the public observe what's going on. Thinking about New South Wales ICAC, when premiers and former premiers have made appearances, um, it'd be much harder to bring the public along on that journey if they were kept in the dark until the final decisions are made. Um, so that's, uh, you know, one reason why it's so important to have that option for public hearings. Mm. Integrity is obviously much bigger than just ICAC. Pete was talking about, you know, it's necessary but not sufficient to restore trust. What are the other elements that you think some of the independents might be pushing in this new parliament um, along that integrity agenda? Mm. Um, so one obvious one is truth in political advertising reforms, uh, something that's been a priority for Zali Stegel since the last election in 2019. Uh, and she's put together a, a private members bill which would implement those reforms based on the model in South Australia. You know, Australia's actually had truth in political advertising laws for over 30 years in South Australia, and they've been tried and tested there. Um, I think it's so obvious that when people see politicians peddling inaccurate information, that's got to damage public trust in the in the parliament. Um, along with that, we've seen moves more recently from Sophie Scomps to um, change how political appointments are made. So one of the controversies in the Morrison government was around the politicisation of appointments to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which reviews some of the decisions that government makes around visas and welfare and so on, Um, and making sure that appointments like that and to the ABC board and all of the many other appointments that government makes are actually done in a way that's open, merits-based, with an independent panel, uh, would go a long way to, to giving people some confidence. Yeah. 
Um, we might go to questions from the audience. Um, Sarah, coming to you, we've got a couple of questions here about the stage three tax cuts. One from Bridget, another from Corey asking, will Labor be able to get out of implementing the stage three tax cuts? Um, and also Pete, Corey's asking if you can stick a stage three tax cuts question into the into the next essential poll. Mm. Sarah, what are the politics of that looking like at the moment? I mean, uh, we know there's been a huge focus that I'm, I'm not sure the Albanese government was expecting to come so soon onto stage three. And, you know, it's a long time until they're actually implemented. It's a long time for this debate to kind of bubble along. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, they're, they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place at the moment. Like, obviously, it's it's not easy to break uh, what is was pretty much an election promise. I mean, Albanese was asked many times during the campaign about their support for the, the stage three tax cuts, um, and he sort of had no choice at that point but to really back them in without otherwise, um, uh, you know, sort of be at risk of um, uh, being the subject of a, a vicious scare campaign at the election. Um, I think it's easy to forget that the government only has a one-seat majority, so they are um, going to be cautious in the lead-up to the next election, um, but at the same time pressure is building on them to scrap the stage three tax cuts, particularly the, you know, the, the benefit that goes to the highest income earners. And we know from the good work you guys have done just how um, inequitable they are, both um, for higher income earners, but also when you look at it through a gender lens. Um, so it is it is a really difficult one for them politically. Um, I, I, I wonder whether they might find a more creative way around it and not break the promise, um, but, you know, have, have some sort of other revenue measure, perhaps something like a deficit levy or a pandemic um, recovery levy or something like that um, to try and um, balance the scales somewhat. Can, can I just say on the stage three, it might, like the way I'm trying to think it through is through that prism of integrity. Um, so clearly breaking a promise feels counter-integrity. Um, so too does flattening the tax system so that um, we basically get rid of something that's been essential about our democracy um, that would enable a whole bunch of really important measures that a lot of groups in society are pushing for. Um, I wonder if it's actually on them to scrap the stage three tax cuts or on us to create the conditions where that becomes the only political opportunity. I think if we all just sit there and in the chat go, yeah, they got to scrap the tax cuts, we're actually, it ain't going to happen and we're actually setting themselves up for a smash. But if over time, like Sarah's right, there's a couple of years for this to play out, um, organising around that, and again, Kudos for you guys for running that um, forum last week. The um, it was the revenue summit. Um, but if the model of collaboration is true, and 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 all these groups in society are saying this is not the what right right way to go, that to me is the only theory of change in terms of this happening. One other thing I would add is that, you know, because there is so much revenue pressure on the government as well at the moment. Every time they are asked about spending that they can't meet, they are going to be asked, well, you know, what about the choice to support the stage three tax cuts? So I think, you know, as Pete said, those conditions that will lead to the pressure that might get them to at least tweak the tax cuts I think is going to be really important. And I can't see that pressure um, doing anything other than grow given the... <laughs> 
the revenue uh, state of the budget. Well, looking at that Guardian, um, um, the amazing kind of uh, data journalism you did there with what could you buy with $240 billion? And it's it's like as Richard, our chief, former chief economist and our executive director says, we're one of the richest countries in the world. We can't do everything we want, but, you know, we can we can pick some things that we want to do. Um, there's there's a there's a lot that you can buy with two hundred and forty billion dollars over ten years. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very persuasive in in that way. Um, uh, Sarah, the next question that I've got for you is around the climate change bill, uh, and it's from John Knox, and he asks, "What will it take for the Labor government to up their ambition from an uninspiring forty three percent reduction, and will they be required to stand by the recommendations of?" Um, their scientific advisory panel, the Climate Change Authority. Where's, where's that up to at the moment? Well, um, I think in terms of um, in, in terms of getting them to uh, amp up their ambition, then you know again we'll come back to that idea of the conditions that will um, push them there. Um, we know that already the government's under a fair amount of pressure from not just the Teal Independents but the, the Greens and uh, other crossbenchers in terms of um, being more ambitious with its climate change bill. Um, we know that this is just sort of the first um, the first stage of the fight, I guess, and. And the Greens have already indicated that when it comes to the legislation of the safeguard mechanism and, and there's sort of some, we'll wait and see what legislation is actually needed for that. Um, but, you know, there's another opportunity uh, there for the government to be pushed uh, on its ambition and, again, on its, uh, you know, its approval of new uh, fossil fuel projects. And, of course, there's the um, EPBC Act review and the government has committed to introducing legislation uh, in response to that next year. So, again, that's another opportunity. The Greens are clearly pushing the climate trigger legislation um, they've introduced a private uh, uh, amendment uh, this week into both houses uh, and they've made it clear that they're, they're unlikely to support the EPBC reforms that the government is uh, has flagged unless there's going to be some movement um, with the climate trigger element to that. So um, I guess on the legislative front, um, there's several opportunities there to push the government further. And, of course, there's, you know, also... Um, you know, we, we've got the, the 2030, we've got the 2050. Um, we, we need to fill in the gaps between those two targets as well. So there's an opportunity um, to perhaps, uh, if they're looking ahead to a 2035 target, which clearly they will need to do, um, then, you know, there's an opportunity there to, to also increase the ambition. Yeah. Um, the next question that I've got is from Peter O'Donoghue. He asks, given the concern expressed around labour expanding oil and gas exploration, support for continued exporting of fossil fuels and granting licences for big gas projects, at what point will discontent within the government become evident, if ever? Um, before I throw to someone, um, I did just want to draw attention to the Prime Minister addressing the Minerals Council um, the other night, maybe last night or the night before, more or less assuring them that fossil fuel exports will continue. Um, I'm not quite sure how much they understand <laughs> if uh, a lot of that expansion goes ahead, how much more difficult that will make the task of achieving their 43% target. Sarah, do you think there's an un understanding of just how much exports contribute to that or are they just willing to kind of cop it, make everyone else do more work because... Um, you know the politics of it are a bit are a bit wicked. 
the politics of it are wicked. And then again, you've got this sort of, um, you know, mixed views within Labor about, um, you know, the, the need for new gas projects um, and also the um, what, what some argue is the strategic importance of allowing those gas exports, for example, um, to Japan. And we saw Madeleine King last week with the Japanese ambassador sort of reassuring them that, um, you know, Australia wasn't about to put in a domestic gas reserve policy um, despite the, the calls for it. I mean, I think, think there's another interesting pressure point there in terms of a, um, you know, super profits tax on the resources companies as well, um, particularly where we've got a situation where um, what's been happening with oil and gas prices means that, um, you know, the, the, the resources companies are, um, you know, Sleeping, sleeping under piles of money every night, and <laughs> Australians are Australians are struggling to pay their power bills. So um, it's sort of interesting that uh, we're not that debate isn't a, a little bit more lively now as well. I mean, Ed Husick has sort of said all things are subject to change, and I think there are some who uh, you know would like that to be revisited. Um, but again, going back to the governments and, and particularly Anthony Albanese, sort of making a virtue of no sudden moves and. And uh, no, no surprises, and sticking to uh, doing what he says and saying what he means. Um, I, I don't suspect there'll be any grand changes on that front. Pete, there's also quite a hip pocket element, obviously, to energy prices. I know Essential's been looking quite a lot at the cost of living crisis over the past few months. Um, does that does that give the Albanese government potentially room to move around either a windfall profits tax like um, Garno or super profits tax like Garno and others have suggested because the cost of living pressures are, are just going to become too great? Yeah, I think you've got the fuel excise um, dropping <laughs> off and also interest rates rising. Um, where the government pitches its measures around easing cost of living in a problem solution narrative, it's got a much better chance of it landing. I think the reflection from the last cycle of government was they came up with a lot of big ideas without articulating the problem they were trying to solve, um, particularly with the mining tax. Um, so, again, I, I think the political project for Labor is to manage the immediate challenges around cost of living and climate and energy transition while setting themselves up for a two- or three-year term. So I don't think we can expect to get everything immediately, and I think a lot of what um, people are going to be moving activism towards is a second-term agenda. Um, I think that the first-term agenda in terms of, you know, what they've done with um, the energy pricing, what they've done with um, integrity, voice to parliament, caring economy, the arguments that were done at the job summit, that is close to an agenda for a term. And I think they will be cautious about doing a rod and just jumping on the next big thing every, every other week. I don't think they're as worried about headlines as Rudd was. Um, so I think there will be a sense of let's just go on a journey with some of these issues. Now, I get that there is urgency around some of these issues, particularly around opening up new energy sources, um, new gas seals and um, obviously coal mines. But the challenge, if, the challenge for progressives and activists is for us to do the long-term strategizing rather than the immediate hits as well, because I don't think the immediate hits are going to get us where we want. 
Yeah, certainly, I guess, um, gas and coal prices. Uh, I mean, the reason people are talking about a windfall profits tax is because their profits are through the roof, largely because of Russia's invasion mm. of Ukraine. Um, the next question I've got here uh, is probably for you, Bill, in the first instance as well. It's from Paul Smith. Do you think the integrity legislation will allow retrospective reviews, if you could cover off on that, and uh, will it look at the purely political appointments of unqualified members to the AAT? I know your program's looked into that as well. Um, so yes to the former. The Attorney-General's been quite clear that the anti-corruption watchdog would be able to look retroactively or, you know, past misconduct. Uh, And that's pretty standard. If you think about something like calling a royal commission, which has similar powers, uh, there'd be no point calling it if it couldn't look back in time at what what has already been done. Uh, And similarly, the commission would be pretty toothless without that option. So absolutely, it will be able to look back. Um, How far it will look back is kind of question left for the commissioners. In practice, um, I think it's fair to say there'll be enough kind of referrals and complaints made that it won't be able to kind of litigate things that are well in the past unless they're very serious because it will just have quite a lot of things to look at. Um, Whether it looks at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal uh, appointments process, uh, I certainly think that's an option for it to do. I don't think we know at this point if it will. A bit of background on that is that uh, the Australian Institute had some research out earlier this year which found a disturbing trend towards more political appointments being made to the AAT um, and those appointees often having less or no legal qualifications compared to appointments to the AAT who weren't political. Um, So whether that's investigated by the Integrity Commission, uh, there is some degree of inquiry already going on from the Attorney General, um, as well as him announcing some changes to the appointments process already. So we'll get a bit more information out about that, but I don't know if it'll be the Integrity Commission per se looking at it. Um, If I can just ask, uh, in addition to that, and harking back to our five secret ministries polling that we kicked off with, I've got a question here from Alan that says, will there be a formal inquiry into the $18 million grant to the Governor-General's Future Leaders Fund? Has there been any news on that? I know the Prime Minister, Sarah, kept kind of putting that issue to the side, but what about that specific idea of the grant? Um, So in terms of a separate inquiry, there's no news on that, but there has been a move in Parliament to disallow the grant to the Leadership Foundation. Um, (coughs) Obviously, there's still a lot of question questions about um, how that, you know, what, what this this charity will actually do. Um, there's, you know, we don't we don't have any information about um, its its um, its uh, remit or um, its plans. So it's all been sort of cloaked in mystery. Um, so both the Greens, uh, the Jackie Lambie Network um, and uh, Monique Ryan have all lodged um, notices of motion to disallow the, the special grant um, for this, you know, non-operational leadership program. Um, so it sort of became clear 
I think late last week, um, or in fact, I think the Saturday paper had a story um, about the fact that this could actually be stopped. So that's sort of the, the moving part at the moment um, in terms of whether there's any further inquiry, um, not at this stage. Um, I suspect that the, the government will be very happy to uh, disallow this grant given the state of the budget. I think $18 million is not nothing, um, but I guess it depends on how willing they are to upset the Governor-General. Yeah, I had another question in here that I've lost now about the Greens proposal to pause interest rate rises, but I was actually interested, Sarah, more in the Greens proposal from um, last week that sent, I think it was Steve Price into orbit about the idea of pausing rent rises. Um, Housing is such a huge issue uh, in Australia. I'm sure it got I mentioned at the job summit, a lot of workers can't afford, you know, to buy houses close to where they need to live as a, one example of why we've got a skills shortage. Um, uh, housing, how much do you think uh, we're going to see anything in the budget related to housing? And how do you think that uh, proposal went down in general in politics? Steve Price was pretty aghast, but anyone who's renting, I'm sure, thought it sounded like a good idea. Well, it's a really big issue, um, and also I thought it was pretty extraordinary that. And I, I don't, I don't know if this was the same interview, but the interview where the you know the, the landlord was outraged by the proposal and then revealed he had two hundred and eighty three investment properties. <laughs> um, so yeah, look, I think I think it, it is a bit of a winner. Um, rental rights are a huge problem. Um, we're having a situation where the stress in the housing market is leading to um, people like some no fault evictions, um, and that's obviously hugely problematic. And um, there's a lot of interrelated problems in this space, um, uh, you know, one of which is clearly the impact of short-term rentals like Airbnbs and particularly in regional areas. I think Hobart is one of the um, most affected markets um, by that phenomenon. Um, so there's lots of problems here. There is a meeting of the state and territory housing ministers this week and Julie Collins has indicated she wants to do more in this space in addition to um, the government's commitment on social housing housing. Um, the, the new Greens uh, member, Max Chandler-Mother, is really quite impressive and knows his stuff in this space and has been pushing the government really hard um, on this area. And, you know, yesterday asked a question in, in question time of Albanese about rental uh, the, the rental affordability and the problems in that sector and there was a very tone-deaf um, joke from Albo in response about living in public housing. So I think um, I think they're, they're, you know, they, they, these issues are resonating. Um, there's been some interesting analysis done on um, so the election outcome and in those seats where there's high levels of renters and how that perhaps influenced the election outcome. Um, we know that in... Um, you know, in some of those green seats, there's a high number of renters and Peter wants to pipe up, which is great because he probably has some actual, you know, uh, quantitative data rather than just my thought bubbles to, to back this up. So let's hear what you have to say. I, I reckon that rent, rental rights and rental caps is the kitchen table economic um, issue for under 30s. And we talk a lot about um day-to-day politics rather than performative politics um, as being really important for parties. I think this is a really rich Mm. vein. You know, in New South Wales alone, we've got a waiting list of 50,000 for social housing. We've got affordability going through the roof and real issues around um, people being able to, you know, live near where they work. So 
I don't think any side of politics to date has seen the potential for this, but you can see the way the Greens are starting to articulate it as, you know, kitchen table economics rather than as something you go out and campaign for, and I think it's going to be a sleeper of this term of government. And also, fun fact, the federal government has previously introduced a rent freeze after after World War after mm. World War Two, I think, um, in you know middle of uh, you know wartime inflation, um, there was a there was a, um, a rent freeze put in place. So it's not unprecedented. Yeah. And particularly with things like negative gearing, I assume off the table forever. But um, <laughs> all the tax concessions for property owners, the whole idea that capital is a class of income that shouldn't be taxed, whereas income, of course, should be. There is, there is a rich vein to be tapped here by smart um, policy and smart politics. Yeah. Um, Sarah, just quickly, a question from Eva Cox here. Will Albo take on the mess of privatised childcare services and aged care or just give more money to profit makers? How, um, what are we expecting uh, after the job summit and anticipating the budget? There's been pressure to bring forward uh, the childcare reforms, but they've kind of been ruling that out as far as I can see. But that's not an issue that's going away there. Uh, how much do we think they're going to make headway on childcare? Well, I think um, the government's been pretty clear, particularly in uh, in the context of the summit, that there's very little chance that they'll bring forward um, the childcare policy from July to January. Um, you know, the government has, you know, it's a big reform, don't, don't get me wrong, um, but there's obviously further discussion in terms of, uh, you know, eventually getting to a universal um, free childcare access system. Um, Jim Chalmers has and, and Albanese have both said, look, you know, the budget, we, we just can't, we can't afford it basically is is um, is what they're saying, despite, their, despite them arguing also that um, this is a productivity investment that, um, you know, it, it, it will ultimately benefit the budget. Uh, Jim Chalmers has said that's not how the budget sees it when you're eight weeks from a budget. Um, so come uh, come October 25th, I don't expect we're going to see uh, much change um, on that front, nor are we likely to see any change in the PPL, expansion of the paid parental leave scheme. And they were really the two key demands from women's groups at the uh, Jobs and Skills Summit. So I think it was uh, disappointing to many of those groups that there wasn't any further action on that. Um, we know that uh, in terms of, uh, you know, what, what they are going to do with childcare and aged care, I think in aged care obviously the, the, we have had some legislation through the parliament, but the next big thing is really going to be the decision on, on wages for aged care workers um, and the government obviously having agreed to fund that. Um, there's still a lot of, uh, uh, you know, um, a lot to be worked out with the aged care sector about the 24-7 nursing commitment um, and also the, the increased number of minutes which the government has agreed to. So um, there's still a lot a lot to happen in that space. Um, I think going back to Pete's point about their, you know, they have a pretty full agenda at this point. So I, I suspect they're going to be pretty busy delivering on their election commitments as it is. Yeah. Uh, I don't see that they're going to sort of bite off more than they can chew uh, and sort of start tackling some of those issues that the, um, sorry, I've forgotten the name, Eva, the questioner um, raised. So yeah. um, I think, I think, that, I think uh, particularly Annika Wells, I think her plate is pretty full at the moment. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening to our recording of our live show Pole Position, hosted by the Australia Institute. 
You can take a look at the slides discussed during the webinar on the Essential Media website. Thank you to the Guardian Australia audio team for helping getting this together. Jordan Beasley produced this episode and Miles Martignoni is the show's executive producer. I'm Sarah Martin. See you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.